0: The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News
1: Talk. But first, the European Union should form its own combined army. That's according to Italian Foreign Minister Antonio Tajani. He said it could play a role in peacekeeping and preventing conflict. Well, joining me for more on this, Billy Kelleher, Fianna Fáil MVP for Ireland South, Paul Murphy, People Before Profit TD for Dublin South West and in studio with me, Declan Parr, defence and security expert. Good morning and welcome. Uh, Billy Keller, we'll talk to you first because what is the noise in Brussels about uh, this possibility?
2: Well, I mean, this issue has always been discussed. It's been discussed for a number of years at this stage. Um, you know, some countries do believe that we should have more federal Europe and that we should have um, uh, a, an army, standing army as such, or that there would at least be a rapid reaction force available uh, in the event of there being emergencies or potential security threats. I mean, I have a different view to that, but it's something that's always being discussed. And of course, as you go further east in the European Union, uh, you do um, hear more discussions around the need for there to be uh, standing security in terms of the potential threat Of invasion from Russia, for example. So, if you're in Estonia, Lithuania, Poland, or Romania, they are very concerned about the fact that um, you know Europe cannot defend itself, and it depends on NATO itself to defend. And, of course, we there's major concerns in Europe around the fact that if uh, Donald Trump becomes the president of the United States of America, that NATO may, e- in effect, uh, you know, be, be abandoned as such from the point of view of the United States' involvement in it. So there are those concerns. And then, obviously, we have, you know, um, 400,000 Russian troops inside in Ukraine at the moment um, attacking Ukrainian positions. So that is the context. But I think b- beyond that, uh, Pat, I mean, we have to accept also that, you know, Europe is not a direct political. Construct, you don't exactly have an executive, you don't have directly elected government. So, I mean, having an army uh, who would decide uh, the deployment, uh, where to be deployed, um, you know, what would be their writing instructions if they were to put into a a hot theatre, for example. So, there would be a lot of Mm concerns from my perspective on that. But at the same time, We equally have to understand that as you go further east, uh, people uh, are very fearful of the fact Mm -hmm. that Russia is a genuine... uh, I I mentioned
1: uh, the Italian foreign minister. Uh, Besides him, how much traction does it have? I mean, to whom does this idea Uh, appeal?
2: Well it appeals to the French for example uh, President Macron has been very direct in, in stating that um, Europe must be capable of defending itself and that we can't always be looking across uh, the Atlantic um, to the United States to help us out in, in our times of need. Um, a lot of um, the Eastern European countries for example the Estonians, the Poland, the Romanians, would also be very much of that view as well and Tajani the um, it, Italian minister who is now the leader of Forza uh, has, has said so as well so it's not uh, unusual and then you, we, we have also seen uh, pre Previous neutral countries like Finland and Sweden now joining NATO. So there is, uh, across Europe, uh, a real concern about potential threats uh, to the security of Europe itself. Mm.
1: Uh, The idea that Donald Trump would uh, in some way diminish America's contribution uh, to NATO, I can't uh, see them opting out of it entirely, but they may not be uh, the big contributor in terms of budget and so on uh, going forward. Given that is the concern of many people, why are you against the idea of heading in the direction of a European force that would effectively work alongside what is left of NATO if Trump damages it?
2: Well, I'm not. I'm not against uh, closer cooperation, but I think the idea that we would have a European Standing Army, um, you know, w- would in itself be a significant challenge. Uh, bear in mind, we don't have a directly elected government in the European Union. Uh, who would be the ones that would decide? Would it be the European Parliament? Would it be the European Commission? Would it be the entirety of the European Council? You know, there, there's a lot of moving parts when it comes to making decisions in the European mm-hmm. Union. It's it's an awkward construct because of the way it's been built over many years. So, so, so
1: you're not against it in principle, just in practice. No, no, I'm against. I'm
2: a, I'm against the concept of European. Standing Army. But what I'm not against is countries that, uh, you know, believe that there is a potential serious security threat, that they don't, uh, that they are allowed to to cooperate themselves, uh, to work closely together, um, you know, to ensure that they believe that there is uh, capabilities for their defence. On the Irish perspective, I mean, certainly we do take part in PESCO, and I believe that there should be closer cooperation to ensure that we can actually, you know, in the event of there being an emergency there being um, a catastrophic event somewhere in Europe, that we could come to assistance as well, be that in search and rescue, be that in, you know, um, natural disasters. But at the same time, a standing army is is, is a very major step for the European Union.
1: All right. Uh, And you've uh, alluded to to that, uh, I think, a quotation from Henry uh, Kissinger, the late Henry Kissinger, who said, when you want to call Europe, who do you call?
2: Yes, and I mean, look, we, we've seen that at previous times. Uh, you know, a lot of people are very, uh, you know, looking back uh, with rose tinted glasses, they were very, they're very critical of America's involvement, for example, in, um, in Yugoslavia, in the former Yugoslavia when it broke up, um, the slaughter in Sarajevo. You know, Europe effectively stood idly by while there was thousands and thousands of people slaughtered um, uh, in, in the former Yugoslavia around Sarajevo and places like that, and we were incapable of doing anything. So that is the other side of the coin, you know, is, you know, if there is a catastrophic event if there is a humanitarian crisis if there is a war we close to our borders or within our borders what can europe do to address those particular issues mm. and there is certain volatility in some areas you look at uh, uh, serbia for example you look at moldova and uh, transnistria so there is there is certain volatility even in within yeah. within the and, the, the and the we've
1: seen europe. in the response by european countries uh, eu members to the ukrainian uh, war the invasion by russia Uh, it's been piecemeal in the sense that the French will do something and the Germans will do something else. Uh, We will provide maybe minesweeping sweeping capabilities, but also humanitarian aid, and maybe take in uh, more Ukrainians proportionately than others because we can't give military aid. Uh, All right, stay with us, uh, Billy. Uh, I'll go to Paul Murphy, uh, TD. I can almost anticipate your answer to this question. Should we have a combined EU uh, force, Paul?
3: No, no, we should not. Um, But I I would say, like, I think it's true what Billy says is that this is a thing that's spoken about from time to time by leading European figures, Merkel, Macron, Jean-Claude Juncker, all coming out in favour of a European uh, army. That isn't something, an actual European army, that is going to take place today or tomorrow. But I would draw people's attention to the fact that this is the road that we are on and things are happening in terms of the militarization of Europe that are bringing us much closer to that position. I mean, the the group that Fianna Fáil is in, that Billy Billy Keller is a part of, Renew Europe, has a policy paper called Towards European Defence in 2030, where they are in favor of what is a European army. They call it European Integrated Mm -hmm. uh, Military Forces. But in terms of what is actually happening, You have a number of serious developments. One, you have the establishment of the European Defence Fund, um, which is a fund of 8 billion euros between 2021 to 2026, which is going to the so-called defence industry, the armaments uh, industry. That is 13 times the amount of money that was in the predecessor fund. So a massive increase. You have the establishment of PESCO, which is this vehicle whereby countries can cooperate in, in a permanent, structured way in military uh, affairs uh, and includes a commitment to increase uh, military uh, spending. Under the latest strategic uh, compass you have a commitment to establish a effectively small-scale European army in the form of just a one 5000 troop uh, rapid uh, response force. You have the establishment of the uh, battle groups, uh, which Ireland participates in. Ireland also participates in in PESCO. Um, and you have big increases in military spending. Are you, are you against in,
1: all of those things, by the way? You know, yes. Are involved yes, in absolutely. PESCO? Okay. So absolutely. just going back to the, the fundamentals, I mean, uh, if we were to join an EU uh, combined force, if there was to be such a thing... Um, The advantages would be, presumably, that we'd have access to eh, the submarines that other nations have that we don't have to protect our undersea cables off the West Coast. Those kind of things that, you know, geography is everything, really. We're an island, but by very definition, we're hard to invade because all we do is bomb our own airports and they can't land aircraft. We could mine our ports, so we could defend ourselves in that way, but little else in truth. Uh, You know, being an island nation, there are certain uh, demands, um, you know, militarily that we are currently not really accommodating.
3: See, I have no confidence whatsoever that a European army, which de facto would be led by the European Commission, presumably it is the closest thing to a European government, that that would only play a defence role, or would only play a role in terms of emergency operations. The the whole thing of the the
1: vulnerability we have fisheries. Okay, that's economic piracy when they steal our fish, but if they were to disrupt the undersea cables, uh, they are connected to Europe. I mean there would be a vulnerability for Europe if Ireland's undersea cables were disrupted. So it would be in their interest to defend us there, would it not?
3: Sure, but but if you participate in let's say European army, let's say European army is established and the European Commission says okay, we're going to war in Iraq or Afghanistan or to support Israel in terms of their assault on uh, Palestine. Well, then, presuming that you have a European army, presuming at that that would mean at that stage that the idea of unanimity in foreign affairs is gone, well, then, Irish troops, men and women from this country, would be sent abroad to pursue wars that are not wars for, for justice, not wars for peace. And people only have to look at, look look what Ursula von der Leyen's position has been in terms of the genocide of Palestinians. She gave a green light to it. The majority of the European Council, the European Council, has still failed to even call for a ceasefire. So I think that should illustrate to people, look, this is not a force for good or peace or human rights in the world. And an army, which is set up by these people, would, would similarly not be yeah. and is not something I, I think it's
1: probably Unfair to Ursula von der Leyen to say that she anticipated the vigour and destructiveness of the Israeli response. I mean, when she showed solidarity with a a country that had been attacked by Hamas, and you know, the equivalent here in this country would have been eight hundred of our citizens slaughtered in one day, um, you can understand there would be an emotional response to that. Uh, but I, I think to attribute to her the notion that she knew what Israel would do in response is probably unfair.
3: But, but if, if you note what she said at the time, right, there was a distinction between what she said and even what someone like Leo Varadkar said, right? So it, generally it would said, OK, Israel has the right to defend itself. But others, including Leo Varadkar, in fairness, recognised the need to say within the framework of international law. I think it still gave too much of a green light to Israel, but von der Leyen did not say that. She very clearly simply gave them a green light. I mean, I I knew. I presume you knew. I think the world knew. uh, Hang on. uh, Israel did not
1: need Europe's green light to do what
3: it went off and did. but, But they got it and they've now killed more than 20,000 people, almost 10,000 children. They've destroyed over 85% of buildings. And the European Commission president has basically mm. been okay with all of that in line with the position of the US. De- so I think that shows like we should not be involved in the militarisation that we're currently being involved in. And the Irish government is driving us along with this by participating in PESCO, by participating in uh, in the battle groups okay, and so De- on. Okay,
1: Declan Power. In- Is acutely aware of where we are active and not active. Uh, So uh, maybe you'd outline to us, uh, Declan, how far down the road we might be with all of this involvement in PESCO uh, and in battle groups and uh, exercises with NATO in certain circumstances. How far down the road are we? OK, well, maybe we should uh, <clears throat> roll back. We've had quite a few uh,
0: jumps there in the last few minutes. Um, I will go back to some of the things that uh, Billy Kelleher said. There is no appetite throughout the whole of the European Union for what could be termed a, a European Union army, uh, politically or indeed militarily. Uh, what is happening, and Paul did touch uh, on some of the facts of this, Uh, is that there is a a series of evolutions in the security and defence architecture within Europe to give the European Union the tools uh, and resources it needs to be able to respond to things that are part and parcel of of European Union and indeed UN uh, uh, values and policy. (coughs) The mention of the battle groups which Ireland participates in, there's an evolution in that through the uh, the plan to have a an expeditionary force of approximately 5,000 troops on standby to be able to go into parts of the world where the UN would require a standing peace enforcement entity of sorts. Imagine something like maybe Rwanda. Uh, or indeed what happened in the Balkans. And those things didn't exist, those instruments didn't exist. To send in a NATO-led force would have been uh, an incendiary thing at that time. So this is, these are the things that are being explored. But just to to inject some practical reality here, people need to know how much resistance there is within European states in yielding up any sovereignty uh, about defence matters. And defence is a sovereign matter right, under the European Union uh, set of values values and that's not going to change anytime soon. So we really need to be quite clear here for listeners. The idea of a European Union army coming to pass now or indeed in the future, and I'm quite happy to stake my professional reputation on this, is a fallacy. What is being pushed for, and it's going to take a lot of time and operational capacity building, is greater cohesion at both the political level as well as the military level in being able to project European Union military resources and assets into an area of conflict or emergency to actually do some good, to stabilise things. Now, there's another aspect to this as well that probably isn't clear to a lot of people. The Italian minister's statements are based on a bit of a power play by the French. The French don't really like NATO as being the main vehicle for European security and defence and they they would like to diminish that somewhat they would like to see the European Union step up more and in some ways that makes sense because with the war in Ukraine and indeed the mention of the funding in the European Defence Fund that Paul mentioned, the reason for that is because the European Union is doing its best to fund the Ukrainians in defending their homeland Uh, so there's a real reason for that, nothing sinister. So Europe politically has the agility to do more across secure not just in military and defence but all of those other matters and the French and some other countries would want to see that develop however A lot of other countries within Europe uh, still prefer NATO to be the main vehicle for security and defence. And that's not going to change. In fact, what's more likely to happen is that there will be an increased agility in the soft power, smaller areas of defence, such as being able to project an expeditionary force to stabilise a country that's falling apart and then have a partnership arrangement with NATO to do some of the heavy lifting. Now, for us, what does that mean? It means that we will contribute troops and resources, as we already have done, in line with our foreign policy. Nobody's putting an arm lock on us. Nobody's going to be conscripting Irish boys and girls into some army to go on foreign adventures. If you look at the history of Europe, if you look at our history and what we've been involved in, that hasn't uh, happened in the past and it's not going to happen uh, in the future in the way that things are outlined. We will see probably just greater opportunities for partnership arrangements. As a country, as you said, Pat, that needs to engage more in defence cooperation, but on our terms, this can allow us to do that. The vehicles that are available to to us through PESCO, Permanent uh, Structured uh, Cooperation, allow us to address some of the needs uh, to secure cables, to secure our infrastructure, both above surface, below surface and in the air. We can't exist in splendid isolation. So the evolutions in Europe allow us to contribute to countries and parts of the world less fortunate than us, in line with our values based foreign policy. And it allows us, more importantly, and nobody ever wants to discuss this, to address our own security inadequacies in some shape and form.
1: Mm. Um, Paul, what say you to that? That the increase in budget to which uh, you, you adverted was in fact to help Ukraine?
3: This is complete nonsense um, and it should be withdrawn. So it was proposed first in 2016. It was established in 2017 and it was a fund for 2021 to 2027. So it may be, you know, used now. All excuses of driving for militarization are said, well, because of Ukraine, threat of Russia and so on. But this was established yeah, and implemented before, that, Paul, the invas- before the invasion of Ukraine. So can you please correct that?
0: Before the Ukraine, the invasion of Ukraine, the European Defence Fund was evolving in a number of areas that you, you seem very no, keen no. to discuss miss. Uh, it, it there's an agreed. awful lot of civilian defence related A- matters that you... have been developed through the European Defence Fund. Matters that have improved De- security and lives of but, f- but, civilians in war-torn but, areas and you're being very blithe and very Declan, quick Declan, to dismiss them, Paul.
3: But Declan, can you accept what you said was wrong? Right? No, you you I said don't accept that the European Defence Fund. You said the European Defence Fund was in response to the invasion of Ukraine. I'm but saying the, the, current level,
0: Fund the current level, of spending by the European but Defence Fund is is in also, relation also, to Ukraine. And if yeah, you can't see that, if you can't see that, there's Deccan. really no point in continuing well, the discussion because it's okay, like you're trying to tell me that the sky is blue when it's raining no, no, outside.
3: So I'll tell you, the European Defence Fund has not increased. It is the same amount. It is the £8 billion for a six-year period as was established before the invasion. What has increased, absolutely, is European member state spending on defence. That has exploded to the benefit of who? To the benefits of the arm, armaments corporations. Who pushed for the establishment I, of the I, I European Defence Fund? I would say defense. to the benefits was, of
0: the Ukrainians, the Ukrainians defending their homeland. Perhaps we shouldn't dismiss that so blithely
1: or yeah, quickly. But but Paul, Paul it I'm it just, it I'm it had just had wondering what, what your advice would be to to people in Ireland, were they to be invaded by whoever, would they just take the pikes out of the thatch? Is that your idea of how a modern war would be conducted, that those who can afford the arms and feed the arms industry would have the weapons and we, on principle, would not?
3: No, I think the best form of defence that Ireland can have is a principled position of neutrality. So speaking out against the imperialist invasion by Russia of Ukraine, speaking also out against the Israeli onslaught against the people of Palestine, being a consistent voice for peace, for justice uh, around the world. But does it include,
1: Paul, just to, to, to be clear, does it include speaking out against the actions of Hamas on October the 7th? I'm
3: opposed to the targeting of civilians, of course. But the idea that now what happened on the 7th of October is in any way a justification for killing more no, than 20,000 people. No, I'm not 20, saying it is. I'm people. saying that, C- that that's the why provocation, to, the provocation
1: which happened on October the 7th uh, was uh, but, a fairly malign event, which, as I say, the equivalent in Ireland would have been 800 of our citizens slaughtered in one day. And we know the kind of popular reaction there would have been to that kind of event. So the condemnation of Hamas should go hand in hand, although the scale is obviously now at this stage very different, should go hand in hand with any condemnation of Israel
3: and positioning the whole thing in the context of the occupation of the Palestinian, uh, of Palestine, the displacement of millions of Palestinian people uh, at this stage, of an apartheid state of Israel that is the the cause of of this conflict and the current horror that people are facing. The other point I just want to make is we are facing horrendous climate catastrophe, which is the biggest threat that all of us face. I don't think that debate would
1: would be particularly um, riveting for people in Gaza at the moment to be quite honest. Sure,
3: but, but, but a new report came out just talking about how the Israeli a- actions in Gaza are going to have a damaging impact in terms of uh, climate change. Every extra euro that is spent on defence funding, on the military, it, it increases greenhouse gases and secondly is a euro that is diverted away from tackling the climate crisis. No, so Paris, the that's idea a,
0: that's that a, a very make simplistic approach. It's not binary, it should, part, The it's idea not that binary. we make
3: the armaments corporations rich on European public money. And that's what this is about. The European Defence Fund, the increase in military spending, all these, their share prices are going through the roof and it's paid for by ordinary people. And I, I think people should have a say and in this. And it's a
0: consequence of the war in Ukraine. The, the need for munitions, are, there's a very real need and that that's an unfortunate consequence of when you let uh, things escalate to kinetic conflict. So one of the reasons that Europe uh, can contribute more to international stability is having a more cohesive defence approach, having a range of tools at its disposal. It means You can head trouble off at the pass and not end up with the all out war that we saw, that we see in Ukraine. If Russian belligerence could have been contained more effectively, we wouldn't be having this war. And there's a number of things you need to contain belligerence, and sometimes threat is part of that. As Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt once said, sometimes you need to talk softly and carry a big stick. The big stick can't be ignored, Paul, and in fairness, that's what you're tending to do consistently, is to ignore the need for
1: a stick that's wielded effectively
0: morally and right. militarily. Uh,
1: i just go back briefly to Billy Keller, who's uh, still listening. Billy Keller, MVP. Uh, what say you, having heard this conversation?
2: Well, when I hear this conversation, I, when I listen to Deputy Murphy on some of the issues. It, it gives me a very little hope that, um, you know, we can actually have a mature debate on what is facing uh, the European continent um, in the years ahead. We're not talking about an army where, you know, we will be recruiting uh, Irish uh, people to send to Iraq or Afghanistan or elsewhere uh, even the, the, the most extreme discussions in Europe with regard to the Finns don't go down that particular route. But I think Declan has summarised it very well. Uh, you know, there is security threats. We do have to have enhanced cooperation. Uh, we do uh, have to work with like-minded people. Use, uh, a very simple example is the cables that tra- traverse the seabed south of Cork and Kerry. They are of international importance in terms of the amount of data flow between Europe and the United States of America. We can't mine those predictor cables ourselves. So we need enhanced cooperation from the French and the Spanish, uh, the UK and other uh, states on the Western seaboard. That's enhanced cooperation. That's what, you know, the discussions we should be having. But to listen to Deputy Murphy, uh, you know, pointing out that there's no threats to Europe. There is a clear threat to Europe and it is Russia. And Russia has four to five hundred thousand men at the moment, trying to, uh, you know, take more ground in Ukraine. And that does have a destabilising effect and a fear factor on the, all of the Eastern European countries uh, pr- uh, you know, in the European yeah. Union. And we can't dismiss it. Alrighty. We can't have simplistic debates, idealistic debates, when there's a real threat to Europe.
1: Billy, thank you very much for joining us. Billy Keller, MEP, Fianna Foyle, uh representing Ireland's South. Paul Murphy, TD, People Before Profit, TD for Dublin Southwest and Declan Parr, defence and security expert.